Blog Talk Radio. Hello once again, and thanks for tuning in to the A.J. Bruno Show. My guest today is Robert George. He's a professor at Princeton University, a constitutional scholar, political philosopher, and one of the leading conservative intellectuals today. We'll have him on here in just a moment. I want to remind you, though, if you haven't yet, as usual, please do follow our Twitter account. It's at Reagan Worldwide. Once again, that's at Reagan Worldwide. You can see all the updates about the show and other fascinating thoughts that might be posted there. So be sure to do that and you know, check out anything that might pop up. Uh, we have him on the line now, so let's get him on. Good afternoon. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Great. So you're an expert in law, political philosophy, and theological studies. How did you get inspired to pursue all this, as well as study these subjects at such a high level on both sides of the Atlantic? Well, it's kind of you to ask. Um, even as a boy, I was I was interested in ideas. I was interested in political ideas. I was interested in um, what made political parties different from each other. I was interested in their history, that sort of thing. Uh, and when I got and had the opportunity to study that as an actual subject, um, I enjoyed it very much. So I took courses in religion and political philosophy and intellectual history and related. Uh, fell in love with the subject, and so I decided I would go on for graduate study, uh, first in theology and law, uh, and then in philosophy and of law and moral and political philosophy. And then I, uh, from there, launched my career at Princeton, where I've been now for three years as a professor of jurisprudence, and that's philosophy of law. Fantastic. So who are some of the figures you have personally studied who you most admire and look to for wisdom? Well, a transformative event in my intellectual life was reading Plato's dialogues, and especially in particular dialogue, the dialogue known as the Gorgias, first time. Uh, that was like a light going off over my head because I learned from it that knowledge is something that uh, we pursue, rightly pursue, should pursue, not simply for its instrumental benefits, but also for its intrinsic value. That was just a big insight. Maybe it's obvious to everybody else, but it wasn't obvious to me, and it was really engaging with Plato. I mean, listening to, reading him, hearing, in effect, him prosecute his interlocutors on the subject is what caused me to have that insight. And I probably am doing what I'm doing today and have pursued the vocation I've pursued because of Plato. So all the figures in history of ideas I've studied have to say that he was probably the most influential in my own thinking. Interesting. So some have also equated your strain of thinking to be sort of a modern reviving of Thomas Aquinas. What do you make of that? Uh, oh. Sorry about that background noise. Sure. There's <laughs> that was strange. Yeah, my, my thought is certainly heavily indebted to Aquinas, probably as a technical matter more heavily indebted to Aquinas and to his, which is the Greek philosopher Aristotle, and even to Plato, if you look at the substance of my ideas, I'm much more of an Aristotelian, uh, as Aquinas was, than I am a Platonist, hmm. and, uh, as I have for Plato. So, so you're 
also very conservative in a field dominated extremely heavily by the other side of the political spectrum. Do you find you generally are treated with professional respect, or have there been some cases where it's been the opposite? Uh, almost entirely. I, I've really had a blessed um, career. Uh, I've never been persecuted. I've uh, never been subjected to abuse. Uh, as far as I know, I've never in any serious way been discriminated against on the basis of my uh, political beliefs or my moral beliefs or my religious faith, being a conservative, being a Catholic, and so forth. Uh, yeah, there are probably some some minor things that I've missed out on because uh, biased people couldn't abide the thought of uh, conferring this or that little benefit or honor or what have you on uh, someone as far out of the mainstream from their point of view as I am. <laughs> but these are relatively trivial matters. I uh, finished my doctorate at Oxford in uh, the mid-1980s. I started right at Princeton where they hired me knowing exactly what I stood for, exactly what I believed. I didn't hide that. They uh, then, to their very great credit, um, awarded me tenure a few years later, uh, promoted me to the rank of full professor, uh, then uh, conferred upon me one of the university's um, most coveted endowed chairs, the uh, former professorship in jurisprudence, which had originally been held by uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, they've given me teaching awards. They let me teach whatever I want. Uh, they let me teach whatever I want, however I want to teach it. They don't interfere with my decisions about what works I assign or what I say in class or anything. I, it's, it's really just been a wonderful um, experience over 33 years teaching at Princeton, and there's no complaint that I have uh, against this university. Yes, it's true that pretty much from top to bottom it's overwhelmingly liberal and, uh, and and secular and I do know colleagues at other institutions who have been very badly mistreated for their religious faith or their conservative political views but I just haven't myself experienced that I've, I've been very fortunate, I've been blessed, I've been lucky oh, That's great So you mentioned awards and one you were given one of the highest honors possible uh, in 2008 President Bush awarded you with the Presidential Citizens Medal uh, what did receiving such a high honor mean to you personally? Well, let me tell you what what meant the most about that. My uh, father, who is now about to turn uh, 93 years old, uh, has always been my hero. Uh, my father's not a well-educated man. He didn't go to college. He fought in World War II. He was in the Normandy campaign. He didn't go over with the first wave, but uh, he did come in after that and fought in Normandy with great valor. He himself was uh, recognized for his uh, uh, valor by uh, by France. They conferred on him the uh, uh, the status of Chevalier of the Legion of Honor of France. Uh, and I bring this up because the most wonderful thing about being invited to the White House, to the Oval Office, uh, by President Bush uh, to receive the Presidential uh, Citizens Medal uh, in the presence of Mrs. Bush uh, was the opportunity to bring my family, and especially to bring my father, uh, who had fought so bravely for the country, who was always my hero, uh, to bring him there, to see him treated with enormous respect as a um, decorated veteran uh, by the entire White House uh, staff, including military people who were there. Uh, and certainly by President and Mrs. Mrs. Bush. Uh, the medal was a wonderful thing. The medal itself, a great honor, uh, and I'm grateful to President Bush for that. But even more was the circumstance in which it was conferred, a circumstance in which my father 
got to witness his son receiving this honor in the White House and to be to be treated as the hero he in fact is by the President of the United States and the First Lady. I'll, I'll never I'll never forget that. Wow, that's fantastic. So you've also served on numerous presidential commissions, and you were a judicial fellow in the Supreme Court. What can you tell us about those experiences? Well, they've been instructive. I'm grateful uh, both for the opportunity to serve. Uh, I've been able to serve the country in several roles as a member or chairman of commissions, uh, and also just for the interesting uh, experiences and the, the learning that came out of those. Uh, I was a judicial fellow of the Supreme Court in the court's 1989-90 uh, term. That was uh, the year of some prominent cases, including uh, uh, one of the famous flag-burning cases, United States against uh, Eichmann. Uh, I got to know uh, then-Chief Justice William Rehnquist, for whom I was working. Uh, that was a great experience. I got to know several of the other, other justices uh, pretty well. Got to know a number of the leading lawyers who appeared before the court. Uh, got to witness some fantastic uh, oral arguments. I, I watched Michael McConnell as it happened in a losing cause. <laughs> Professor Michael McConnell, who's since become a very dear friend, I watched him uh, argue a case. Uh, it's still, I think, to this day, the most brilliant oral argument I've ever uh, heard. So that was a great uh, experience and a learning uh, experience. And then, of course, it was an honor to be able to help out the Chief Justice. Then in 1993, Three, uh, January 20th, the, the, the day uh, President Clinton was sworn in. In the morning, before President Clinton was sworn in, President Bush I, George H.W. Bush, while he was still president, appointed me to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. That appointment came completely out of the blue. I didn't seek it. I didn't know there was a vacancy. Uh, I didn't know much about the commission, and I probably couldn't have distinguished it from, say, the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But nevertheless, um, I uh, uh, was asked by President Bush to, to serve on the commission uh, for a term of six years, so it took me into the Clinton administration. Uh, and through uh, the entire first term and half of the second term. And it was tough. It was tough work. The commission was ideologically badly divided. But we were able to accomplish some things, including um, uh, a series of hearings on religious freedom and especially the denial of religious freedom for students and some teachers in American uh, public schools. And that was good. I took the lead in uh, in, in uh, designing the hearings uh, that the commission conducted on religious freedom in public schools. And uh, the, the report that we did, I think, continues to be uh, useful. It had a very positive impact. Then um, uh, when President George W. Bush uh, uh, was elected, uh, he asked me to serve on the President's Council on Bioethics. And that was a, that was a, a very interesting experience because it was right at the time at which the embryonic stem cell research issue hit, the question of whether the government ought to be funding research involving the uh, deliberate destruction and perhaps uh, uh, even the creation of embryos, human embryos, for uh, destructive research. Uh, that was right when that issue uh, hit. There were 17 members of the commission all appointed by the president. The president deliberately appointed a very diverse group of people, not, not just in terms of the usual categories of diversity, hmm. but diverse in terms of ideas and beliefs. Uh, I was strongly and remain strongly opposed to any deliberate destroying of human life at any stage, including the embryonic stage. But there were members of the commission who were completely at the opposite pole 
who believed that embryonic stem cell research was entirely uh, ethical and that there was actually uh, nothing uh, unjust or otherwise uh, wrong about uh, destroying embryos for research and even creating embryos by cloning, for example, uh, for use in research in which they would be destroyed. So it was a very uh, lively uh, discussion on the, on the commission. We were chaired by a great man, a truly great man, uh, Leon Cass, and then later by Dr. Edmund uh, Pellegrino. I really valued that opportunity uh, to serve. And we did support President Bush made, from my point of view, the right decision, which was uh, not to fund, uh, subject to a very minor qualification, what I believe is a minor qualification, uh, but not to, not to put forward with funding of embryonic stem cell research. That forced research down another line, that is the creation of um, uh, the equivalent of embryonic stem cells, fully pluripotent uh, uh, stem cells, without destroying embryos by reprogramming ordinary, ordinary somatic cells. That was a victory. That was a victory for the cause of, uh, of, of human life, and President Bush deserves a lot of credit for that. And uh, Dr. Cass and others on the commission uh, who uh, supported the president uh, on that, I think, did some really good good work. I mean, it was, uh, it was the right thing to do, and I think it, it, it came out well. I like the direction in which the research went. We should be doing that research, but we should be doing it in an ethical way, not in a way that involves the destruction of human life. Then in, um, uh, well, shortly after that, I uh, was asked to serve on a United Nations commission, UNESCO's World Commission on the um, Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. And that appointment came um, at the request of uh, the U.S. government on the basis of the work I had done as a member of the President's Council on um, Bioethics. Then in 2012, um, I was um, asked by then Speaker of the House John Boehner to take uh, an appointment that was in his uh, authority to give on the U.S. Commission on uh, International Religious Freedom. This is a commission that I myself, back in the 90s, had strongly advocated the creation of because I felt there was a strong need for U.S. foreign policy to take very seriously into consideration uh, questions of uh, religious freedom in nations with which we were uh, conducting business or forming military alliances and so forth. So when the opportunity to serve on that commission arose, and again, it was not anything that I sought or, or requested, it was, uh, the speaker came to me, uh, I, I seized it, and I was then later uh, elected to two terms uh, by my colleagues on the commission uh, as chairman of the commission. And I really believe in that cause. It's like the pro-life cause. The religious freedom cause is a, is a cause that's very dear to me. I think it's so critically important, so central to human dignity. So it was an honor and a privilege to uh, to serve on the uh, on the commission. And I had some wonderful uh, colleagues there, including the uh, Democrat-appointed member with whom I traded uh, twice uh, the committee's chairmanship, the commission's chairmanship, Katrina Lantos-Sweat. Uh, despite our coming from opposed political parties, um, I'm a Republican and was appointed by a Republican. She was a Democrat and appointed by a Democrat. She was appointed by Harry Reid. Our views on international religious freedom and a lot of other things, actually, uh, were completely in line with each other. Uh, I'm a Catholic. She's a member of the Mormon faith. Uh, she has a uh, she has a strong uh, Jewish background. Her father was a congressman who had been a Jewish congressman who had been a Holocaust uh, survivor. 
from Hungary. But anyway, despite, uh, despite the differences, we shared a lot in common and really had a completely united vision when it came to international religious freedom. And so we worked together uh, really, really well. And I think, again, we're able to accomplish some good things. There was a lot that we were not able to accomplish. The situation in the world for religious freedom just at the moment uh, is very, very bad. Uh, people are being persecuted all over the world, whether we're talking about North Korea or China, Vietnam, uh, all over Africa, and so many places in the in the Middle East, um, Latin American countries like Cuba and uh, Venezuela and so forth. There's a lot of persecution, but we were able to do some good and uh, help to relieve the plight of some um, prisoners of conscience, uh, some pers- members of persecuted religious minorities. And that's good to do, and I'm glad. I was glad for the opportunity to serve. So, as you can see, I've had a diverse set of experiences across a range of issues serving on government commissions, and I'm grateful for all of them. Oh, quite a lot of experience. So, I, on that issue of religious freedom, I know you're partially of uh, Syrian descent. I was wondering, uh, regarding the situation for Christians in the Middle East, do you think there's any way to reverse this trend that's been going on? Because it seems like whenever there's instability, even if it's a dictatorship of some sort, the radical elements come in and they'll use that to further persecute Christians and other minorities. And it's getting to the point where in the future there might you know, not be much of a community left. I mean, what, what do you make of that? Well, you're right, A.J. I mean, it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. Uh, my dear friend, uh, Elliot Abrams, who um, uh, served for a term on the Commission on Religious Freedom with me, and of course is a great expert in international relations, himself uh, Jewish, Elliot once said to me, you know, the Christians are the Jews of the Middle East today. The persecution that Jews suffered throughout the Middle East, whether we're talking about Iraq or Iran, uh, uh, Syria, uh, Egypt, the persecution that Jews experienced um, really leading to the uh, evac- basically the evacuation of Jews from the Middle East. I mean, once great flourishing Jewish communities have now dwindled, dwindled to nothing in, in places like uh, Tehran, uh, in Iran, and uh, Baghdad, uh, for example. And Elliot says, look, that's what's happening to Christians today. Uh, wherever you find persecution, you find that a lot of that persecution in the Middle East is directed against uh, Christians, a lot of Christians have been killed, AJ. It's just an almost unimaginable horror, the number of Christians uh, who've been killed. Now, there are others who've been killed as well. Uh, Muslims, member of minority Muslim sects like Ismailis, uh, um, uh, Ahmadiyya, uh, uh, members of other religions have been severe persecutions against Zoroastrians, for example, and others. The Baha'is have been victims of uh, persecution. But the one thing you find just about everywhere where there's persecution on the grounds of religion in the Middle East and lots of other places is that Christians are centrally uh, among the victims. And very often, I, you know, I hate to, I don't want to get partisan here, but I'm just going to be blunt with you. One of the problems that Katrina and I discovered, uh, Katrina Lantos Sweat, uh, on the commission is there is an element in our own country and culture which simply does not, for their own ideological reasons, want to recognize persecution of Christians. They seem always to want to depict Christians as persecutors, not as among the persecuted. And uh, that's even been internalized by some Christians in the West who will call attention to the persecution of members of other faiths, which they should, and that's right, but who will not call attention to the persecution of their 
fellow Christians uh, because they have somehow bought into this narrative that um, Christians are persecutors. Christians are never the persecuted. Christians are imperialists. Imperialists. Christians are never the victims of uh, of oppression. Uh, well, uh, Katrina and I and others on the commission really did fight strongly against that and tried to elevate the public uh, understanding and profile of the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and and uh, elsewhere. We don't think that Christians should be given any special treatment, even though, uh, you know, I'm a Christian and she hmm. is a Christian. Uh, she, uh, but we do think that they should not be treated worse or that their plight should be ignored because they're Christians. That's really just ridiculous. No, I agree. That's a terrible tragedy. On that same line of thought, I feel like, especially in certain Western countries, if uh, there's Muslim clerics or figures who are speaking in favor of terrorism or supporting persecuting minorities or groups that don't agree with their radical strands of Islam, I feel like that is protected in a lot of ways. For instance, in the U.K., which you've spent a lot of time in, obviously, um, a lot of people don't realize that there's no actual lawful right to free speech there. I mean, if you speak out about these issues, for instance, when the prime minister was home secretary, she actually banned people for years for talking about this. Uh, what do you what do you think about? Well, I'm a strong advocate of free speech for everybody, and I'm a strong advocate of free speech certainly for people that I uh, disagree with. Uh, I think that uh, there is a difference between uh, protected free speech or free speech that should be protected and incitement. Sometimes the, the line is, uh, is gray, and that create some problems. I think people should be able to advocate things that uh, I think are horrible. For example, I, uh, I defend the right of my colleague at Princeton, uh, Peter Singer, to advocate infanticide, even though I think that's a horrible thing and I'm deeply, severely critical of his view. Still, I think he has every right to uh, uh, promote it. But there's a difference, as I say, between um, um, exercising a right to free speech and inciting people to uh, to violence. Our courts have, have wrestled with that and have come up with some, I think, reasonably good principles for distinguishing uh, the two. But this much, I think, certainly can be said. Hmm. If you have people advocating, even as a matter of protected speech that doesn't constitute incitement because of the lack, for example, of immediacy, if you have people advocating violence in the name of religion, advocating um, the, uh, the killing of infidels or what have you, then you certainly have to respect the rights of their critics to criticize them. So I have no problem uh, with a religious leader. I don't care whether it's Muslim or Christian or Jewish, whoever it is. I have no problem respecting the right of a religious leader to advocate things that I disapprove of. Mm -hmm. But I claim my own right, which I think is equally stringent, to criticize that person for advocating things that are violent or unjust or uh, otherwise worthy of criticism. Free speech is a two-way street. Both sides get it. Mm. Sure. When it comes to free speech and particularly a democratic vote, we saw one example this year in Ireland where that backfired in a, in a really terrible way. Uh, I was appalled to see the margin in the Irish abortion referendum, particularly when you look at how lopsided it is among the younger age groups. What was your reaction and analysis of how heavily Ireland, which was such a you know so, such a Catholic country, voted in favor of abortion? 
Well, I was appalled by it, but I have to say I was not completely surprised. Um, Ireland has been secularizing for a long time. Ireland has a strong anti-Catholic, uh, certainly anti-clerical, but I think going beyond that, anti-Catholic uh, element, and that has been there for, uh, for a long time. Uh, there's a complicated story there. Uh, clericalism itself in the Catholic Church, I think, uh, provoked a lot of anti-clericalism and more than a little anti-Catholicism. So I don't want to exonerate uh, the Church in Ireland here from responsibility. And, of course, there were the, the sex, um, uh, uh, sex abuse scandals in Ireland uh, that, that really brought the Church into disrepute. We have them here in the United States, so we know mm-hmm. all about that. But uh, part of the reason I wasn't surprised is years ago, in the mid-'80s, when I was a graduate student in Oxford, my uh, supervisor, uh, the great uh, Catholic convert, natural law theorist John Finnis, uh, and I had a conversation. He had just come back from uh, Ireland where he'd given some lectures. Uh, and one of his lectures, or one set of his lectures, was in Maynooth, where the uh, Catholic seminary is. And he mentioned to me that when he uh, spent some time in the bookstore, the, the bookstore for the seminary, he noticed that all the books on moral theology that touched on issues that divide the right and the left, roughly speaking, all of the books uh, in the, at the seminary were books written by people on the left and promoting left-wing views, but promoting views that were contrary to the actual teachings of the Catholic Church on abortion, on homosexuality, on sex outside the bond of uh, marriage, on that whole uh, spectrum of moral issues. And that was a signal. Uh, Professor Finnis interpreted it as a signal, and I thought he was right to interpret it as a signal that something was really bad in the um, in, in the Catholic situation in Ireland, that there was already a loss of faith, that Ireland, even in its ecclesiastical circles, was moving away from historic Christian moral teaching and embracing the dogmas of secular progressivism, abortion, uh, homosexuality, uh, uh, li- liberal ideas about all of these um, life and, uh, uh, and family and marriage and sexuality issues. So when, when, the, when the vote happened first on same-sex marriage and then on uh, abortion in those referenda, I wasn't completely surprised. Appalled, yes, mm-hmm. very disappointed, but not completely surprised. No. No. And on that line, we're, I think we've been losing the culture wars in this country for a while, too. Um, between, and I saw actually read about a speech you gave at a conference a few years ago in Orlando where you talked about how people who are, whether they're Catholics or Christians, they might either just not believe or ignore some of the key moral principles associated with that. I mean, whether it's legalized abortion on demand, gay marriage, uh, the military being corrupted, you know, a huge porn industry, etc. Um, how do you think we can climb back from this abyss that we've fallen into? Well, uh, my late uh, beloved friend Richard John Newhouse, when he was talking about the sex scandals back in the early 2000s in the Catholic Church, um, gave what I think is the answer, will always be the answer, it's certainly the answer today. What we need is fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. Our, 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 our problem is a lack of fidelity, a lack of fidelity not only among the laity, but among the clergy and even the episcopate. Uh, a lack of, of conviction, a lack of commitment to the principles of the Catholic faith, a, a real failure to trust God and his word and uh, to, to trust the actual historic uh, 
uh, teachings of the church. Um, we need to get back to that. We need to teach and preach fidelity. We, we don't need any new principles. The old principles are right. It was infidelity to the old principles that got us into the soup that we're in today. And so the answer is, as Father Newhouse said, fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. Mm-hmm. And on that same line with those old principles, I think the founding fathers would be turning their graves and a lot of what's been done supposedly in the name of the Constitution, even and even putting religion aside. So as someone with so much legal knowledge, can you explain how people who have sat and continue to sit on the Supreme Court or other high courts find imaginary constitutional reasoning to justify abortion or sodomy or gay marriage being legalized by basically judicial fiat? When you sit back and think about it, AJ, it's really quite comical. So uh, in 1965, in the case of Griswold against Connecticut, right as the sexual revolution of the 60s was really taking off, the anovulant birth control pill had been invented, I think, came on the market in 1961, roughly sometime around there. So just as it was taking off, the justices decided that that the remaining um, laws against contraception, which existed in the New England states, interestingly, they had... They'd been removed from the books by legislative uh, enactment uh, in most of the country, including the South and the West. But they were still on the books in what was then the more conservative part of the country, <laughs> which was New England. That certainly changed. So anyway, when the when the justices decided that they wanted to get rid of these laws, but of course couldn't find anything in the Constitution uh, that would warrant judicial action to remove them, Justice Douglas, writing for the majority in the case of Griswold against Connecticut in 1965, claimed to find a right to use contraceptives, uh, which was a specification of what he claimed was a more general right to marital privacy, what pleased him to call privacy, uh, in penumbras formed by emanations of various constitutional guarantees. Well, there's about as spooky and metaphysical a concept as you can come up with penumbras formed by emanations in the Constitution. Uh, And he should have been hooted at. He should have been laughed at. Uh, the court should have been uh, subject to ridicule, and in some circles, uh, circles it was, because clearly what was going on there is they had found no such right in the Constitution. They made it up, they manufactured it, and they usurped the authority of the elected representatives of the people, or actually of the people themselves acting through their elected representatives, to make a decision one way or another about what the law would be when it came to upholding public morality in the area of of, of sexuality. Certainly under the Constitution, the people, the states have every right, if they choose, to uh, not have laws against contraception, and by then most states have decided not to prohibit contraception um, uh, with the force of law. But they also had the right to do it under the Constitution, because nothing in the Constitution uh, created any right to uh, contraception, marital or otherwise. But since the justices thought the people were backward and benighted, at least in Connecticut and Massachusetts in those days, and they decided they were somehow intellectually and morally superior, Uh, they decided to strike down those laws, but had to embarrass themselves by claiming to find them since they were available nowhere else in the Constitution in these uh, phony penumbras formed by emanation. And then, of course, this was just a few years later, seven, eight years later, in 1973, that the Supreme Court claimed to discover uh, seven justices out out of nine claim to discover a right to abortion in the Constitution. Well, again, the word isn't mentioned, the concept doesn't exist, no euphemism exists for it in the, con- in the Constitution. There is nothing about it in the Constitution. There's certainly nothing in the text 
or logic or structure or historical understanding of the Constitution that would warrant judges coming in and imposing on the whole country in the name of the Constitution this license to kill uh, unborn children. But they did it. So where did they claim to find it? Well, this time it was not in the penumbras formed by emanations. They claimed that it was in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. I will now tell you what that clause says, and it is simply this. No state shall deny any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. No, no state shall deprive any person, I should say, shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What that actually means is pretty clear, right? States are not allowed to deny people of life, that is, deprive people of life, that is, execute them, deprive people of liberty, that is, put them in jail, or deprive people of property, that is, subject them to a forfeiture or monetary fine, without due process of law, which means, according to the historic common law understanding of uh, due process, you need to give them a fair trial, they need to have a jury of their peers, they need to be given a presumption of innocence, they uh, need to have an independent judge who's not the same person as the prosecutor, you can't have the prosecutor and the judge as the same person, and be uh, affording people due process of law. That's what those words mean, and that's pretty much all they mean. They don't have anything to do with abortion or any other uh, social issue. They certainly don't uh, entail or, or, or suggest that unborn children are not human beings or not persons or not entitled to the, to the law's protection. Once again, these, these liberal elite judges, some of whom counted in those days as conservatives, most of them actually, I think the majority, if not almost a majority, were Nixon appointees. But nevertheless, they were socially liberal, and these socially liberal uh, judges decided that the people didn't know enough uh, to govern themselves, decide what the law of abortion should be uh, in the states, that they would come in and impose a one-size-fits-all solution, a very liberal one, one that denied the unborn any uh, protection, uh, on the entire uh, country. Again, it was what our founding fathers would have called a usurpation. They took authority vested by the Constitution in the people acting through their elected representatives and appropriated that authority to themselves. They set themselves up, in other words, as an oligarchy. It was an example of unconstitutional oligarchic rule, which is why uh, I say that, that the Roe versus Wade decision is not only constitutionally incorrect, not only improper from a constitutional point of view, it's an unconstitutional, indeed an anti-constitutional decision itself. Uh, one that I believe no president and uh, no Congress should actually respect. I mean, I would urge any president I have for many years simply to defy it, the way Lincoln defied the uh, equally uh, notorious um, uh, and unsound Dred Scott decision uh, back in 1861. No, and I, I was thinking that actually uh, back when all – when both houses of Congress and the presidency were controlled by the Republicans under Bush, and they didn't really do anything about it um, to challenge that decision, which I thought they should have. Uh, but nowadays, with Anthony Kennedy retiring from the Supreme Court, we actually have a situation where, realistically, Roe v. Wade could be overturned. Uh, what's your forecast for that situation uh, looking in the you know, relatively near future? Well, you have one justice currently on the court who has already said that he believes Roe v. Wade needs to be overturned. That's Clarence Thomas. Uh, 
Um, it's a very good bet uh, that Justices Gorsuch and Alito share that conviction, although they haven't formally said so in an opinion. Uh, I think the odds are that just Chief Justice Roberts also shares that view. That gives you four. So the question is, will Brett Kavanaugh, who's the new nominee, uh, be confirmed? It looks to me like he will be, but who knows? You never know until the hearings happen what's going to come up. Um, but anyway, uh, so it depends on whether uh, Kavanaugh is confirmed. And if he's confirmed, whether he will turn out to be a justice who who shares the view that, that Roe should be overturned. Now, I have no doubt that Kavanaugh believes that Roe was a an incorrect decision. I mean, everything we know about Kavanaugh and his philosophy of law, his judicial philosophy, his understanding of the Constitution, um, tells us that he has to understand that Roe was a, a uh, an unwarranted uh, adventure by the judiciary, a usurpation of, Congre- of, um, of legislative power. But the question then becomes, well, yes, but what should be done about it? Should it be treated as a, um, uh, as a um, case that should be upheld on grounds of precedent, even though it was wrongly decided? I hope that's not his view, but I can't say for sure that that's not his view. Now, people who know him personally, I don't know him personally. I've probably shaken his hand a couple of times, but that's it. I don't know him personally. I know Neil Gorsuch quite well, but I don't know. Uh, sorry, I speak for <laughs> bit more confidence about it, what I think Gorsuch will do. I don't know uh, Kavanaugh, uh, but friends of mine who do know him uh, tell me that they think he's very likely to vote to overturn. So there's five votes to overturn. Now, I myself, uh, A.J., had, um, um, although I'm, uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, looks like he'll be a good justice to me, I myself had hoped that President Trump would um, nominate uh, Judge Amy Conan Barrett. Uh, who would be a sure bet to overturn Roe versus Wade, and also, obviously, as a woman, and uh, I think there would have been an advantage there. If Kavanaugh is confirmed and provides the fifth vote to overturn Roe, uh, that will mean five men vote to overturn Roe with three women plus one man in dissent. Uh, I don't like the optics of all three women on the Supreme Court um, uh, dissenting from the decision to overturn uh, row that will that will enable the media to play this up as something it's not and shouldn't be treated as that is a uh, so-called woman's issue. Uh, the right to life is a, is a, is does not know sex. It's not it's it's as much a right of women as men and as much a right of men as women. And we protect unborn babies. We protect female unborn babies. We protect male unborn babies. But um, I'm, I I think it will be an invitation to uh, the media. Uh, to play this up as a so-called gender issue or a woman's uh, issue, which is too bad. I think it would have been better uh, if there were a woman, uh, at least one woman, voting with the majority to overturn Roe. I also fear that uh, not having a woman to provide the fifth vote could cause some of the other justices to hesitate and think we should put off overturning Roe until you get a woman on the court who's willing to join uh, the anti-Roe uh, justices with a vote to, to reverse it. And any, any moment that Roe remains on the books um, is tragic. Uh, it needs to be overturned as quickly as possible uh, because it's an offense uh, not only against unborn babies and, and, and an injustice to the victims of abortion, but it's also an offense against the Constitution, and it um, perpetuates the idea, false idea, 
that Supreme Court justices function as a kind of sitting constitutional convention that get to alter the meaning, to dictate, rather than interpret the Constitution, to dictate the meaning of the Constitution. Mm. That's bad. That's very well said. I, I agree. I wanted to ask about another issue. I know you serve on the Council on Foreign Relations. What can you tell us about those meetings you're a part of and what's your response to some of the conspiracy theorists who say things like claiming it's working towards a one-world government? Oh, well, I've been on the council for, gosh, probably 15 years now, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think I was, yeah, I was serving on the President's Council on Bioethics when I was elected. And I think one of the reasons that I was elected was that the um, uh, some uh, people on the council believed that with bioethics, bioethical issues becoming more and more prominent as international issues, there ought to be people on the council uh, with some expertise in the bioethics area. I, I was uh, encouraged uh, to uh, to accept uh, membership on the council by some very notable conservatives: uh, Bill Buckley, uh, the late William F. F. Buckley, um, uh, Norman Podoritz, the great uh, neoconservative intellectual, former editor of uh, Commentary magazine. Uh, there aren't a lot of conservatives. Uh, uh, on the council, but there are a number, and uh, uh, they they encourage me to join and to try to increase the number of conservatives on the council. If you attend meetings, and I, I would uh, encourage some of the meetings are public meetings, by the way, and I would encourage um, uh, anybody who believes these silly uh, conspiracy theories to attend some events uh, by the council. You'll see that you know there's no conspiracy to establish one world government. There are certainly, uh, especially among people on the more liberal side, which is the majority of people on the council, there's certainly a kind of globalism and internationalism. Um, uh, I don't represent that tendency or point of view, but but that is, um, I would say, the the view of the majority. But that's going to be true at any university. It's going to be true in almost any elite institution uh, in in this country. Um, it's it's a view that's very much under attack now. I mean, it's precisely the view that I think the populist movement here in the United States and populist movements abroad, like the Brexit movement in England and uh, some of the movements in Western Europe, uh, other Western European countries, and certainly in Eastern European countries, it's the tendency that that they're um, opposing uh, globalism and internationalism. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, that's that is the majority view, but it's a view that you're perfectly entitled to contest and argue against uh, in the uh, meetings of the council. And I feel perfectly comfortable uh, in, in doing that. The, the council doesn't all that often actually take positions. And when they do, they're usually not on highly controversial things. The council mainly is a kind of... Uh, debating society. It's, it's, it puts issues on the table. It brings in people who disagree on these issues to, uh, to discuss them, to debate each other, to try to you know, advance our overall knowledge in the area by bringing to bear the best arguments on the competing sides. It's what I try to do in my own uh, classrooms. So uh, I, 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 I can't give any credence, just based on my own experience, I can't give any credence to the uh, idea that there's some big conspiracy here in the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, I, I, I encourage conservatives, rather than uh, uh, conspiracy theorizing about it, to try to join it. I could use some, uh, I could use some reinforcements. I need some help. Uh, especially uh, some, of the, uh, some of the old guard have, uh, have gone on to their uh, reward. Hmm. Well, uh, maybe one day I could join it. That would be nice. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it uh, it was a fascinating and insightful conversation, and I want to thank you again for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks, Bye and uh, Bye. That was Robert George. We discussed really a lot of deep, important issues there, and I thought that was one of the best episodes we've had so far. So we'll be back next week with a new guest, new subject, as always. And until then, this has been A.J. Bruno for The A.J. Bruno Show. I'm signing off, and I will see you then. Thanks.